So I recorded this week's episode last night. It's kind of an old school Slee Ricketts, Slee Ricketts classic episode. It's solo. It's uh, all about poetry. It is filled with profanity and it is highly unserious. So I was feeling pretty good. I came downstairs to uh, chop carrots and lift weights like the white Amat Majmadar. Uh, that would be, my, if I were a rapper, that would be my my opening boast would be, I'm the white Amit Majmadar. And my battle rap opponent would say, so do you also publish three books a year and Moonlight as a radiation oncologist? And I would say, no, even better. I publish one book every 12 years and Moonlight as a podcaster. So anyway, I was, I was in a good mood. I was feeling... Feeling confident, feeling like, hey, I just just laid down a good episode. This is going to be good. We got we got a bunch in the can, and this fresh one coming out. And then, I, so I had ended the episode with a with a sort of a, a lighthearted rant about the joys of insults and the and the pleasures of the 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 unadulterated English language. And then, you know, as I was as I was getting the carrots out of the fridge, I did have the thought that like, well, you know, I didn't really talk about racism at all. I didn't really remember the racists. And that that's pretty bad. I mean, ra- racism and racist insults are pretty horrible. And then I and then I listened to an interview with a with a radical Australian feminist and not Alice, by the way. Um, I, I I know of Australians other than Alice. Alice is a, I'm trying to remember her politics or she's a men's rights activist, I think. You can reach her at poetrysayspod at gmail.com. Just let her know if you have any feelings about about any of that. But so, so I listened to this interview and the radical Australian feminist talked about getting uh, vicious, misogynistic abuse for, I mean I'm not laughing at the misogynistic abuse which is which is horrible but uh, but she she got horrible misogynistic abuse online and she was just talking about all of the the ways in which uh, nasty mean men use words to abuse her and all this just sort of got me thinking about my my rant and how my 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 full-throated if slightly tongue-in-cheek defense of uh, of bad words and and insulting language maybe had some flaws maybe had some holes I hadn't quite accounted for uh, and then I thought you know again the spirit of this podcast is that it's better to go ahead and say the dumb interesting thing and then and then get a lot of grief for it and then have an, a worthwhile conversation than simply to uh, then simply to bite one's tongue and uh, behave nicely and speak in sotto voce and produce Between the Covers by David Naiman. Uh, so I left it all in and you can get furious about it at the end of this episode if you like. Thank you in advance for your understanding and sorry Nazis, still not a white supremacist podcast. Uh, better luck next year.
I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening. I've been, I've been sitting here trying to get, get all my ducks in a row, and I just realized I just need to start recording because uh, I've got too, we've got too much to talk about. We'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see if I, you know, some of it, some of it, some of it will make it on the main feed, and some will probably go to the Secret Show. Uh, thank you for thank you all of you who do subscribe to the Secret Show. It makes a big difference. We've got some uh, new subscribers recently. Welcome. Uh, welcome. Some of you have uh, bought, paid your own way, and some of you have been gifted subscriptions. Either you can't if you subscribe, you you should have the ability to give a couple of free month subscriptions that without paying. I mean, you should that should be an option you have on there. Take a look. If you can't find it, let me know, and I'll try to help you out with it. But also, some of you have just given uh, given big old nice uh, year long subscriptions to your buddies, for which I say. Thank you and welcome to everybody, even if you don't subscribe or you just steal it using your internet wiles. <laughs> Congratulations, you're smarter than I am. Uh, and, I, and really thank you also just for, for taking a moment to tell somebody about the show, whoever it is. Uh, and, and if this is and if somebody told you about the show and you're listening and this is your first time, then thanks so much for checking it out. And I promise I will not say anything to offend you today. I can't. I really promise that. That's all. I, that's just a bald faced lie. But uh, but thank you anyway for giving it a try. Up until the moment you say fuck this and uh, and delete it from your downloads. Uh, what did I? Oh, so I've got a bunch of really good episodes in the can, like long juicy stuff, uh, including one in which Cameron <laughs> takes on the entire new formalist establishment and burns it to the ground, uh, and another in which Alice comes back. Uh, Alice, who's been away way too long, we had a really fantastic and very long conversation that will probably get broken up into a couple of uh, segments. But uh, all of that is coming. I, I had to, though, do a solo app to start off the year, and I got a couple of you wrote to me about this this big end-of-year essay that appeared in the New York Times. You were... <laughs> as. Everybody, you were like everyone in the poetry world, just thrilled to see it and and welcomed, uh, welcomed with open arms. Uh, Matthew Walther, <laughs> conservative Catholic editor of the the Lamp magazine and author of the opinion piece "Poetry Died One Hundred Years Ago This Month." <laughs> uh, I am kidding, of course, because everybody fucking hated this piece. Uh, as, as Shane said, everyone is freaking out about it. Poetry Twitter is losing it <laughs> over this piece. Uh, I did, I'm not on Twitter and I didn't see a, a whole lot of this. I did look up just to see a couple of responses. I, I didn't want to quote anybody who was not like didn't have a big following, but I found uh, I found. <laughs> I found some found some good stuff. First, though, I I'll give a, a maybe a brief overview of the piece because I thought it was I I thought it was very bad. I thought it was a a dumb essay, but I didn't always think it was dumb in exactly the same ways that that everybody else thought it was dumb. So, uh, partly the problem with it is that this guy the the argument he presents is to use a an old workshop cliche i think this is really two essays where he he doesn't seem to have he he seems to be it, it seems to be difficult for him to focus long enough to 
to get a single argument out coherently. I was honestly shocked when I saw on Twitter that he he referred a number of times to the editorial process that he went through with an editor to to streamline the piece and give it more shape because I can't imagine anybody edited this at all. Uh, he he starts by saying, like many millennials, I was educated, if that's the right word for it, on the internet, the online music critics and anti-war bloggers of the mid-2000s who were my teachers did not introduce me to T.S. Eliot, but they made sure that I had reasonably detailed opinions about Apocalypse Now Redux, the 2001 update of Francis Ford Coppola's classic war movie. I I have no idea what he's talking about here. I mean, I complain to Ryan all the time that, that you know we received a, an insufficiently grounded, uh, classically impoverished education. But I mean, I certainly was introduced to Elliot a, a number of times and Apocalypse Now read Like, I'm kind of wondering even like who... Who is the teacher who was who like put the emphasis? I mean, I had I had some wacky teachers with some particular obsessions. I had one who who spent uh, he spent probably a month of our class, our English, our I think it was our sophomore English class, uh, just showing us and breaking down scene by scene the the Oliver Stone classic film JFK. Uh, so, I mean, I had some wacky teachers, but this in particular, I, I can't really relate to. He goes on to say, though, because, of course, in uh, Apocalypse Now, there is a recitation of the Hollow Men by Marlon Brando's character, uh, Kurtz. And I think part of the joke of that, if I remember, is that the, uh, if the epigraph to the Hollow Men is the line from Heart of Darkness, which is, of course, the book Apocalypse Now is based on. Uh, in which a a servant on the boat going home informs Marlowe, the main character, or the narrator, uh, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. I believe that's the line that Eliot quotes as the epigraph to the Holloman, making it a kind of a, a Mobius strip of a cinematic moment. But Walther's point is that he he got to know Eliot through through, you know, by hook or by crook, and he fell in love with him. And he writes a kind of an appreciation of Eliot. Uh, it is a little disorganized, and he he seems to he seems sort of to, to all but worship Eliot in a way that, and to assume other people worshipped Eliot in a way that, that doesn't totally make sense. Um, quickly, I have to say, just because I was so excited to realize it, that uh, Walther quotes this line from The Wasteland. It's the first line of the second stanza or the second verse paragraph, I guess, of The Wasteland, the line is, what are the roots that clutch? What branches grow? And, I, and I've and i always found that kind of uh, exciting or titillating in a kind of a funny way. What are the roots that clutch, especially? What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow? And it was only reading it out of context in this essay that I realized where it comes from. Because of course the line, what are the roots that clutch? What branches grow? to my mind, has to come from the lines, beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Maybe I'm crazy, but I, I hear that very vividly in Eliot, and I, and I love it. I love both of those poems. Uh, so well done, Lewis. Well done, Eliot. Sorry, Lewis, Lewis. Well done, Carol. Well done, Eliot. And well done, Walther, for pointing, pointing out, well, he didn't point out that connection, but he pointed out the line. 
Um, he, anyway, he, he says that, that people don't appreciate Eliot sufficiently. And um, he says, modest as the festivities have been on the 100th anniversary of the, the Wasteland's publication in 1922, I am certain that in 100 years there will be no poem whose centenary is the object of comparable celebration. This seems to me true for the simple reason that poetry is dead. Indeed, it is dead in part because Eliot helped to kill it. So this is where I guess I mean like the, the essay just becomes a kind of a, a weird meandering Sunday drive of an opinion piece because he then he then has to uh, include his to be sure paragraph or two in which he says, of course, poetry isn't literally dead. There have probably never been more practicing poets than there are today. Graduates of MFA programs working as professors in MFA programs. I, I mean, that, that sentence alone tells me that this is not somebody who works in academia. I mean, that, that could easily be like plagiarized, like lifted directly from Dana Joya's uh, essay, uh, Can Poetry Matter, that, which I talked about sort of with, with John Dilworth. But that came out 30 years ago, I think, 25 years ago or, or more. Uh, and if it were, and if you were to write it today, it was, should really read, there have ne probably never been more self-styled poets than there are today. Graduates of MFA programs aspiring to work as adjuncts in MFA programs. I mean, sorry, no, aspiring to work as adjuncts in undergraduate creative writing programs or undergraduate English programs. I mean, that that's really it. Like that that's what the graduates of MFA programs are doing today. They are they are hoping that their big break will come through and they'll get a one-year gig teaching as an adjunct in an undergraduate program. That's that's the that's the big dream. So the the practicing poets, professional poets uh, line as 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 biting as it was at the time is is really no longer applicable at all. Uh, he does sort of acknowledge that that this is only the latest in a long uh, tradition of essays about how poetry is dead. And then he says, but the autopsy reports have never been conclusive about the cause. He claims to be conclusive about the cause, but I, I don't, I, I really, again, he, he, he names some other, other arguments other people have made. And then he says, we, uh, the problem to me seems to be more fundamental. We stopped writing good poetry because we are now incapable of doing so. Okay. All right. Okay. So we can't, there's no good poetry because we can't write it. Why not? The culprit is not bad pedagogy or formal experimentation, but rather the very conditions of modern life, which have demystified and alienated us from the natural world. I mean, that seems very familiar. Like that, that feels like something I have heard numerous times from various sort of somewhat conservative leaning poetry critics. Like that doesn't seem, certainly doesn't seem like anything James Matthew Wilson has not said on like 50 occasions. Uh, certainly feels like it could come out of any number of essays in the New Criterion. He then quotes a Robert Southey poem for some reason. And, and he said, and like his point at the end is that we today find this passage boring. I mean, it is not a great passage. He also quotes it in block quotation format, but without breaking the lines, which is just absolutely drives me crazy to look at. Uh, it's totally unclear why Robert, what rather Robert Southey is supposed to represent now versus what he is supposed to have represented, except that we are out of touch with nature, or as William Wordsworth put it, 200 years ago, little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away a sordid boon. So again, like it is totally unclear what this argument even is, and certainly what of it is original. 
uh, modern life is disenchanted by science. I mean, that's also the argument made by uh, Edgar Allan Poe in his sonnet to science. He, see, he, he says that the muses have left us and we, they, we wish they, we need them to come back, which is again, it's something uh, Blake says um, it, over 200 years ago in his wonderful short poem, uh, To the Muses, I believe that's what it's called. Really lovely little, little um, poem of his. He then sort of st like stumblingly transitions back to Eliot after having made this kind of half-hearted claim about how we're, we can't write nature poems anymore, I guess. Uh, he quotes the love song of J.F. Prufrock again in block quote format, but without breaking the lines, which is just fucking, what is, what, what, why? Even if your argument is that you need to save column space, like even if this is a format borrowed from the, from the print edition, you still could save more space by simply not block quoting it if you're not going to break the lines anyway. So I just, I totally am I'm baffled by this editorial decision, which is one of the reasons I assumed there was no editor. He then goes on to cite the wasteland without, he refers to a line and the prosody of a line in the wasteland without quoting the line, which is not great practice. He says, in breaking with his predecessors, notice how the nine syllable lines with which the wasteland opens hint at iambic pentameter, teasingly reminding the reader of the vanished inheritance that the author is mourning. And I don't think, I mean, I know the first line of the wasteland, uh, April's the cruelest month breeding is nine syllables, but I don't know, I mean, but the, all of the lines that follow in that little section that do have a somewhat, you know, they, they all end with uh, present progressive uh, verbs, breeding something, something, something. Uh, those don't, definitely don't all have nine syllables. And as Joshua Megan wrote in to say, like basically this was what drove him most crazy in this article. And I, and I kind of sympathize because it is so maddening to hear people who kind of vaguely remember learning about meter back in high school refer to fucking syllable counting as like the way that in which we, we, we scan lines, refer to like, well, does this have 10 syllables and thus is it iambic pentameter? Or does this not have 10 syllables and thus is it not iambic pentameter? When of course, like... There are nine syllable lines that are exactly iambic pentameter. They're just called headless lines. And there are 11 syllable lines that are also iambic pentameter. And there certainly are plenty of 10 syllable lines that are not iambic pentameter. Syllables are not the same thing as feet. God damn it. Um, and also, if you think like, if the, the syllable count of the opening lines of the wasteland, which as Megan also points out, like contains plenty of absolutely standard blank verse lines uh, and, you know, uh, intermittently rhyming ambipentameter lines. If like the syllable count of the first few lines is your, that's your landmark for identifying that Eliot was nodding to the tradition. Like if that's the only sign of the tradition that is being departed from that you can find in the wasteland, then like you're fucking illiterate. I mean, it's just a bizarre observation. Uh, and again, it's like, it's a, like my, like one of my jokes to my friends when I first started this podcast is that I wanted to make a, uh, I wanted to make a dumb pod podcast for smart people. This is like a smart poetry essay for dumb people. Uh, so it's totally, totally maddening to read. He, he goes on to, to, to end on this, like this oddly, he ends by like citing Slavoj Žižek, who's a, like a radical socialist philosopher. <laughs> Um, in, who's, who's very famous for saying it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. He says, uh, Walther says, for my part, I have an easier time conceiving of a world socialist utopia than I do a re revival of poetry in English, which like, okay, 
Sure. I mean, again, like, I don't know what revival means. I don't, I also don't think that Zizek would say that the only way that capitalism can end is if we achieve a world socialist utopia, but fucking whatever, man. I mean, I'm sure this guy doesn't consider himself a socialist. I'm not totally sure why he's, why he's, he's tapping Zizek for a, for a last minute appearance in his essay, except that maybe he thinks that'll, that'll troll the libs in the New York times. I don't know. Um, and then he ends by, uh, by citing a line from Eliot's Ash Wednesday, lost heart stiffens and rejoices in the lost lilac and the lost sea voices, which is beautiful. And then he, he says that leaves us in the somber position of Eliot speaker and Ash Wednesday mourning the absence of something he cannot name. So we're mourning the absence of something we cannot name. But I thought he did name it, and its name is poetry. And that's the thing we're mourning the absence of. He anyway, it's it's a it is a highly confused and confusing essay, uh, obviously titled and intended to provoke. He apparently did totally provoke. Uh, people. He infuriated poetry Twitter and plenty of other poetry social media uh, scenes and presumably got extra traffic for his little conservative culture magazine, which like good for him. I, I did think that there was a, uh, oh, I did. all right. So a couple, a couple quick notes because um, I'm trying to get my fucking lands in order here. Um, all right. Well, so first I, I do think that there is actually an argument he makes in here that is a worthwhile argument. It is totally buried within a bunch of poorly thought through claims. And he 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 uh, he makes too much of it. He makes so much of this small observation that he kind of loses the credibility that it might have had otherwise. It reminds me a little bit of the Parole Siegel piece that Brian so disliked uh, on the, the trauma plot which I thought was valuable, not necessarily because it made a, a great and accurate statement about culture as a whole right now, but really because what it seemed to be saying, the, the thing that it seemed to say that I thought had value was, this is a thing we are doing a lot lately. We are doing it almost reflexively at times without thinking about it. I'm tired of it. Let's do something else for a while. And that seems like exactly the kind of observation that a critic should be able to make. The observation he makes in here that has real value is this one that Walther makes. He says, Eliot was successful, so successful that he remade all of English poetry or what has passed for it since in his image. The clipped syntax, jagged lines, the fixation on ordinary, even banal objects and actions, the wry, world-weary narratorial voice. This is the default register of most poetry written in the past half century, including that written by poets who may not have read a single line of Eliot. The problem is not that Eliot put poetry on the wrong track. It's that he went as far down that track as anyone could exhausting its possibilities and leaving little or no work for those who came after him. It is precisely this mystique of belatedness that is the source of Eliot's considerable power. That all seems like pretty worthwhile literary criticism. You can argue about it, but I think, I think what I hear him saying there is there's this thing Eliot did that had to do with fragmentation and allusion and uh, deep cynicism about modernity, as well as the uh, uh, continual evocation of modernity. And this is a thing that 
became so popular that that much and maybe even most or all poetry written today is in effect a version of this thing that Eliot did, and that would be okay, except that Eliot did it better than everyone since. It's okay to start a new movement, it's okay to start a new style, but the problem is that if the person who invents that style does it way better than everyone else who comes after, then it's not really a new style, it's a dead end. And either we need to find a way to do what he's doing better, to extend, you know, to push it further, to go beyond where he went, or maybe we need to try to do a different thing. Like that, to me, is a totally worthwhile critical observation. Uh, it's just that instead he concludes that this means that Eliot killed poetry. And, you know, and then like the conversation is not really going to go any further uh, from that point. So I, I do think that like the, the more interesting response to this piece is, uh, is that I is that like, well, all right, so so maybe this observation about all of us being being, you know, pale shadows of Eliot has some bite to it. And so let's see if we can try something different. Let's see if it's worth attempting a different kind of thing that is not quite so Eliotic in its tendencies. Um, that to me is kind of the more interesting response. And before uh, my dad or someone else says, aha, so why didn't you just try to find the good in Viktor Frankl instead of shitting on him so much? Uh, I will say it's because everybody who's re re read the Matthew Walther piece has found, uh, has, has just shit on it, has just said it's horrible and worthless. And so it's more interesting to me to try to find what's valuable in it. Whereas every single person in the history of humankind who's ever read Viktor Frankl, except for me, has thought he was a fucking god among men. So yeah, it's okay for me to shit on him a little bit. All right, I promise I'm not going to keep griping about Viktor Frankl and how people, <laughs> whatever. All right, enough Viktor Frankl. Um, I did, I, I found a one of the people on Twitter who had a very, very large following, and so I don't feel bad uh, calling him out, was Eric Smith, not to be confused with my, uh, my beloved friend, Eric Smith, the managing editor of the Sewanee Review, managing editor and poetry editor of the Sewanee Review. This is a different Eric Smith who's a literary agent and who has way more followers on Twitter than my Eric Smith does. He, his tweet, his initial tweet about this was, oh, I see we're ending the year with the discovery of a new type of guy. Um, type of guy being a joke about somebody, a type that we can make fun of this guy for being a, a type rather than an individual, which is fine, I guess. I'm not sure what new type this would be. But then he goes on kind of more interestingly to, to make a couple of um, pointed remarks that got a lot of response or at least a lot of traffic. So um, one very simply and just i thought hilariously he said these are these are sort of his responses to his own tweet he said anyhow here are a few modern poets i'm totally smitten with great totally fair response right if somebody says poetry's dead nobody's writing any good poetry today a totally fair response to that claim is to say oh well what about these people whom i love i certainly felt that same response when i read the piece uh great fine wonderful share poets you love recommend people worth reading excellent it's just that I, I have to laugh a little bit at Eric Smith, whose whose handle on Twitter is at Eric Smith Rocks. Uh, and who, by the way, when I looked him up, his most recent... <laughs> I mean, 
you know, he's got 80,000 Twitter followers. He's a literary agent, whatever. Eric Smith is a young adult author and literary agent with P.S. Literary living in Philadelphia. Query him if you've got a young adult novel you're hoping to sell. His, <laughs> his latest book is called Jagged Little Pill, colon, The Novel, a collaboration with Alanis Morissette. <laughs> uh, great. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. That's not all. It's a collaboration with Alanis Morissette, Diablo Cody, and Glenn Ballard. And it's not its not just the novel, a novelization of her album. It's a novelization of the musicalization of her album. <laughs> which I, oh man, God, good for you. Good for you, Eric Smith. I, I hope you, I hope you, you, you hope you made good. Of, what a, oh, now I just, see, now I just like him. Now I just feel my, he's got his little, his little Kangol hat and his cool guy t-shirt. I, God bless Eric Smith. I, all right, everybody go be nice to Eric Smith. First though, he makes this, he makes this, this joke at Walther's expense that I think is sort of both fair and weirdly telling, like in not quite the way that he may in, intend. So he, he cites a quotation, he cites a, so he cites a tweet that I think he screen capped it so as not to give traffic to Walther, but he, he cites this tweet Walter wrote in response to some criticism of his piece. Uh, Walther says, for me, the best test of poetry is always that of unconscious staying power. I challenge anyone who wishes to defend the honor of contemporary verse, formalist or otherwise, to rattle off unaided any 10 lines of the stuff. The house where we were happy, perhaps it's standing still on the wrong side of the railroad tracks halfway down the hill. Perhaps new people live there who think the street name quaint and watch the dogwood petals shiver down like flakes of paint. Perhaps they find it rich when spring is making shift to find the bank in blooming pink where we had planted thrift. Perhaps they reap our roses at an antique jelly jar and maybe they are happy there and do not know they are. Now, I'm pretty sure I dropped a stanza. I think it's a five stanza line, and, and I just recited the four, but that's 16 lines, so uh, so go fuck yourself, Matthew Walther. But, 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 um, what more importantly, Matthew Walther says, for, for me, the best test of poetry is always that of unconscious staying power. I challenge anyone who wishes to defend the honor of contemporary verse, formalist or otherwise, to rattle off unaided any 10 lines of the stuff. And then, directly next to that, uh, Eric Smith um, snapshots a, a correction that was that was made to Walther's piece in the Times. Uh, a correction. It, it, the, the note reads: A correction was made on December 29th, 2022. An earlier version of this article misquoted a line in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. It reads: When the evening is spread out against the sky, not with the evening spread out against the sky. So, so Eric Smith juxtaposes those two passages with the implication, I guess, meaning that Walther misquoted. Prufrock and like there's no excuse for misquoting Prufrock in an essay in the New York Times like he or someone else should definitely have have fixed that but it's a bizarre it's a bizarre suggestion like the suggestion seems to be that like Walther has been owned because he he failed to quote Eliot precisely and and I just find that to be like a completely baffling supposition like to me misquotation is is like akin to mispronunciation like i i so i i filled in for alan shapiro a couple of times uh at unc when he when he taught there um 
So I, I came in and taught a couple of his classes. And he, what he would do in order to prepare me was he would send me his syllabus and then give me notes on what they were doing in class and, and you know what was going on. Um, and usually his students were so well prepared that I, I basically had, didn't have to do anything. They, they more or less ran the, the class for me. But I read Alan's syllabus every time he said, and like the thing about Alan's syllabi is that they're basically like 50 page primers on poetry. Like he doesn't just write a syllabus that's like a couple pages telling you what you're gonna do that semester with a few notes about not plagiarizing things. Like he writes, he writes like a giant packet filled with poems and like essays about prosody and essays about uh, modern poetry. Like he, I mean, they truly are like little, like every syllabus he writes or wrote is like a, is like a little version of the what like the pamphlet that E.B. White expanded into the elements of style. Like it's this little impromptu like masterclass in poetry. So uh, I, I am definitely going to trying to get Alan on the show and I'm, I think it's really going to be good. He he I want to try to get him to talk about how he distinguishes between accent and stress because Josh uh, said he also had something to say about that distinction and so i i'm it's it's one i'm very interested in and maybe we can get maybe we can get into more of that maybe we can get super nerdy with some prosody coming up soon is what i'm trying to say but here's the thing about alan's syllabus when you go through it it's crammed with poems tons of poems and they're often like great little finds things that i'd never seen elsewhere uh poems like oh fuck what's the name donahue's sister that's it donahue's sister is a um a uh tom gunn poem that I did not know. Uh, holy shit! I'll see if I try. I think I, I tried to send it to somebody recently. I'll see if I can find a copy of it because it's so fucking good. So yeah, just like great little poems um, in these syllabi. But here's what I noticed when I, I, I looked because some of my new uh, myself, some of them are you know ancient poems or classic poems. Some are, are more recent. Some are less you know less well known. But the thing I noticed when I started to go through them was that there were just occasionally funny little errors and there would be sometimes errors of like the line was wrong like he'd broken the line in the wrong place um, occasionally he misspelled things or sometimes he spelled things in a way that was maybe a standard spelling but not the spelling used in the in the poem but they're just little funny funny like visual errors like errors that you would make if you were not looking at the poem when you copied it and it was only on like spending a lot of time with him later in person, uh, going over poems that he loved with Jonathan. He would just sit down and talk to us about some Coleridge poem he loves. Um, it was only then that I realized why he'd been making all those visual errors. And it's because he was writing down, when he wrote the syllabus, he was writing all those poems from memory. He knew them by heart. He just knew like, hundreds of pages of poetry often like free verse contemporary poetry by heart and so when he, he wrote he was copying them down from his auditory memory and then he made these funny little mistakes so i actually think that like a small misquotation suggests if anything that you that you do note like you are used to memorizing the poem you're used to relying on your memory and so so sometimes you make a mistake so i just think like this this like classic internet style like daily show style ironic juxtaposition like completely misses the fucking point that walther makes which i think is a decent one like 
he clearly knows nothing about poetry. Like he clearly is a buffoon. But like whether or not you can memorize a poem, whether or not a poem makes you want to memorize it seems like a meaningful test of some kind. Like a meaningful standard. Again, not because it's binary, not because like it's like if Walther's right, then poetry is dead and we all have to admit it, but because like maybe that's a thing worth considering now. Like fuck this guy. He's a moron. He's not a moron. He's I'm sure he's a perfectly nice guy, though he does sound like a like a <laughs> prodigiously bad time. Like I definitely don't want to hang out with him. But uh but I don't think that there's but I do think that they're like there's something to be taken from from this very poorly thought through essay. Um I also so I I won't name this person because I a listener sent me a a statement that she wrote on social media and it's a social media site I'm not on because I'm not on any of them except I realized I, I am the social media site I am on is chess.com which as I've said before does not sadly does not sponsor the show but uh, but I am on there so um, if you ever want there's no people don't really chat on there I mean the only chatting again as Brian has pointed out is like like Australian children in the middle of the night like sending you mean emojis but uh but if you want to play a game of if you want to beat me at chess then you can go on uh chess.com and look i'm I'm just listed under slee ricketts and i am very bad but very enthusiastic um but since i'm not really on social media sites and this was posted on a social media site but and it's i don't know like under circumstances where like i don't know i mean i think if you post it on a social media site like a major social media site you are basically making a public um, if you're Eric Smith and you're doing it specifically in order to get likes and retweets and you have 80,000 listener followers, then I think I don't feel bad. But in this case, I just wasn't sure. So I won't name the person who wrote this, but I did think that what she wrote was worth citing for maybe a couple of reasons. So the, I'll just say this is a poet in her mid-50s who is very well-established, well-known, not not a superstar, but like a has a very cushy sinecure in academia and uh and has published many books and gotten many national fellowships and, and awards and things so um so like a, a well well established uh poet and here's what she said about walther's piece she said so i read the latest article declaring the death of poetry and as usual the writer knows little about poetry past or present though he has Though he has down a few of the basics about Eliot, for example, vis-a-vis TSE's relationship to the ambic pentameter line, I have to say, I'm not sure that he quite has that down, but okay, whatever. She goes on, there are lucid and intelligent ways of being unhappy about the state of the art, and one not need be a writer of poetry, nor of poetry criticism or scholarship to mount a critique. But unfortunately, today's uh, offering can be summarized thus and this is this is so she's ventriloquizing walther she's saying this is basically what he's saying um so she the rest of what i'm going to read from this older female poet is a is a ventriloquization of what she believes walther is actually saying 
So here, she, she quotes him, so to speak, as saying, I like this one great poet mostly because I came across him when I was young and the world seemed open to me. And though I don't know anything about any of his great contemporaries, those aligned with him or those, oppo those who opposed him, and though I don't know anything about what followed in poetry, and though I don't actually understand anything about the romantics or nature poetry as evinced by my use of Robert Southey to make my point, and because I myself didn't hear about any centenary celebrations of this one great poet, even though there were a number of publications and performances, uh, and also because I'm a cocky millennial man-boy feeling a bit disappointed about my life, and because I know somebody at the New York Times, I'll feel entirely comfortable writing some nonsense which they'll publish because they know it'll irritate the people who actually spend time reading, writing, teaching, and conversing about the art, and give them something to complain about on social media. Or more briefly, I don't know much about poetry, but ignorance need be no barrier to my expressing generalized opinions founded on lack of understanding of the art, along with vague ideas of value that I've neither examined nor revisited since I first read a poem. I agree with like 85 to 90% of that. Like I think I think she's she's pretty right about her criticisms and mockeries. What stood out to me partly because I because I so much agreed with her for the most part was this curious note that again I don't I can't even say I disagree with it. But I, I just found it, 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 it leapt out at me, and I've just been chewing it over and thinking about it. So, so she said, she she uh, sort of ironically quotes him as saying, "I'm a cocky millennial man boy feeling a bit disappointed about my life." So, let's let's see. Let's I'll go ahead and break that down. If you are somebody who is like not devoted to the scholarship of poetry. Like if you're if you're like not somebody steeped in poetry, and honestly, like even if you are, like even if you're uh, Helen Vendler and you say T. S. Eliot killed poetry, like that's that's probably a cocky claim. Like it's probably fair to say like you have to be a little cocky to, to make that claim. So I think like cocky is is quite uh, is quite well founded. And millennial is too. I mean, he calls himself a millennial. I, I believe based on, you know, uh, taking a look at his rather sad <laughs> author photo. He's probably about my age. A cocky millennial man boy feeling a bit disappointed about my life. Man boy meaning somebody who is chronologically uh, a, an adult, but fails to satisfy the requirements of adulthood. I mean, I'm assuming that's kind of what that means. And then he feels a bit disappointed about his life, as she says. So I I don't know much about his personal life, but here, I'll read his bio. I mean, his short bio includes the first two sentences of this bio. Uh, Matthew Walther is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. He is the editor of The Lamp, a Catholic literary journal. Uh, and if you click through, it reads, and a media fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. He was previously a national correspondent for the week. He lives in rural Michigan, where he was born and raised with his wife and their four children. He is currently researching a biography of Ignatius Sancho, Britain's first black man of letters. So I am curious 
what she supposes, why she makes the assumption that he's disappointed about his life. Now, do some of his job descriptions sound like like conservative foundation make work programs for uh, for social critics? Like, yes, but like that's certainly no less true for like most like most liberal commentators. Uh, certainly, like true for plenty of other people who write in the New York Times. I and mean, he is a contributing opinion writer, which based on the fact that that's now Frank Bruni's title and, and he lists it in his Twitter bio, like I think that's a an ongoing position. He's the editor of The Lamp, a Catholic literary journal. Not a journal I'm excited to go read, but I don't know. Like I'm not sure he has, he's married, he has four kids. I, I'm really not sure what is manboyish about him or why he should be disappointed with his life. But I do find a couple of things, but I do find like both of these observations sort of interesting. So for one, I think that the the millennial and the disappointed with his life line reads to me as a, I asked Jonathan, I said, like, why do you think somebody would write this without it seeming to be very well founded? And he said it it may be a way of discrediting, like by calling, by saying somebody is writing out of resentment, which is a strategy, you know, that's been employed. Uh, he cites Harold Bloom as employing it. It was, it was employed also by uh, Nietzsche. Um, and so maybe that's what this, poet is saying about Walther that he's writing out of resentment. Again, it's a little bit of a well-poisoning claim because of course he can't say, no, I'm not. <laughs> he can't say, I'm not disappointed with my life. I mean, it's hard for, for him to come back at that kind of accusation. And, you know, and I guess like as somebody who is a female, a successful female Gen X established poet, this guy is has, is less prominent than she is and is certainly not established in the literary world the way she is. Although he does have a, a I guess he, he does have a voice at the New York Times, which is a, a prominent, which is the, the paper of record. So like, I, I guess there's a I don't know. I mean, I, I, here's my speculation, which is also unfair, but you know, <laughs> I guess turnabout is fair play. Here's my, because, because here's the thing. I, I hear this kind of claim made not infrequently. Like I hear man boy or man child or this kind of like, oh, resentment, writing, writing. I hear this used to dismiss writers not infrequently. And, and it's definitely like true in many cases. Like it's, it's, it's really like more applicable to me than it is to, to this guy. Um, but I, I wonder why it's something people reach for. And I, I think because I do tend to hear it mostly from baby boomers and Gen Xers. And while like Brian is right, generations aren't real and generational warfare is is usually a lot slipperier and less uh, clear cut than we than we seem to suppose. I do wonder a little bit about sometimes we disparage people who are less successful than we are, not 
just because they deserve disparagement, but because doing so makes us feel less guilty about being more successful than they are. And I wonder a little bit here if, like saying he's disappointed with his life, like things haven't worked out for him. And, and presumably if he's a cocky man boy and he's a millennial with all of the, all of, all of the bad associations that come along with that, the entitlement and the, the laziness, right? This is what we, we hear about millennials. Um, and so there is this suggestion that like he probably thinks that he's entitled to something that he hasn't gotten, but really he doesn't deserve anything he hasn't. He, he doesn't deserve to be more successful than he is. He doesn't deserve to be as successful as the older female poet criticizing him and maybe disparaging him in, the, in a way in this way is a way for her to deflect any doubt about whether she is where she is purely by merit or possibly by luck, right? Which is the reason most of us are wherever we are. Like most of the success any of us have in any mode is mostly due to luck, right? Which isn't to say the hard work doesn't matter, but luck matters more, like a lot, a lot more. <laughs> So I don't know. I found that like that that the the man boy thing and the the millennial cocky um, disappointed with his life. I just found that to be like a fascinating note. I don't have like a very as you can tell like I don't have a really crisp theory of that, but I am interested in that as a line of criticism and a trend. So I'm curious like if any of you have thoughts about why people talk that way, or maybe like something I'm missing. Maybe it's a totally fair line of attack, and I'm just I'm just overlooking something obvious. So please do let me know what you think about that. Um, I, it also, though, I wrote a note, and all of a sudden I talked a little bit about this. I'm interested in the gendered aspect. I know Ryan hates that word. He hates when I call something gendered, which is an ugly word, but maybe it's useful. When gender is overlaid onto something where it might not be, where it might not belong otherwise. And, and it is, you know, man boy is clearly a gender specific insult. It's also one that is totally socially acceptable among people who also who find female gender specific insults to be very unacceptable. Like, you know, to say like, I would bet a hundred dollars that the person who called this guy a man boy would object if someone referred to a woman writing a similar essay as being hysterical, right? Hysteria being, you know, historically a, a disease stemming from the wandering of the uterus, right? This is the, the old wacky theory about what hysteria was. Um, so it's a, it's a very gender-specific insult. Though, of course, we do use hysterical sometimes to refer to the behavior of men as well. But I, but I would bet $100 that this, that this critic, that this, that this poet would object if someone called her, say, hysterical, but she blithely called this guy a man-boy. Now, Alice's response was to say, well, she shouldn't have done that. Like, that's a mean thing to say. Man-child, which is maybe the more common version of that insult, is a mean thing to say. Uh, we shouldn't say those things, and maybe we will, over time, find that we use this kind of gender-specific insults, these kind of gender-specific insults, less and less often, and that will be a good thing. And Alice is uh is a better person than I am <laughs> because I I don't know I mean I, I I chafe a little bit at her calling this guy a man boy but I also don't know that it's wrong like 
the as a as a connoisseur of insults, I have to give her credit. Like cocky millennial man boy who's probably disappointed with I'm a cocky millennial man boy feeling a bit disappointed about my life. Like that's pretty good as an insult. And like when you're building up an insult, you need a, sometimes you need some momentum. Sometimes you need to fit the fill the rhythm out. Sometimes you need uh, some specifics to give it a little bit more sting. And I think like that's fine. I think that's fine. And I also think that at least the way we talk about gender, I mean, Brian is a, is a great gender abolitionist. I mean, he believes that gender is basically meaningless, that there, there's no behavioral or uh, um, sociological differences. There are no social, behavioral, psychic differences between men and women, he says. And I think Brian's also, I don't know that Brian's a better person than I am. He's a smarter person than I am. He's a more knowledgeable person than I am. But I think I, I think I, I think I break with Alice and Brian both here in thinking like, actually there are maybe some qualities we at least associate with one gender over another. And some of those qualities attach themselves to insults. <laughs> and insults are supposed to be insulting. And so, you know, as somebody who loves good insults, I, I would kind of prefer to say like, no, go right ahead with it. It's interesting, like it's totally, completely acceptable to, let me put it this way, like in the last several years, as it has become less acceptable to call women girls, it has become more acceptable to call men boys. And like some examples of the 100% feminist approved insults that include this term are soft boy, fuck boy, soy boy, man boy, man child, um, also completely acceptable, acceptable and maybe even Maybe even virtue signaling are term words like creep, dick, prick, simp, wanker, white knight. We use pejoratively for all the boomers out there, uh, or incel, which is again like it's been like incels invented incel to reclaim the condition, and then it was re-reclaimed by people using it in a derogative way, <laughs> so a derogatory way. So I just it's like an amazing, amazing development for that term. Um, but at the same time, it has become totally, totally unacceptable in the same social circles to use terms like catty, shrill, hysterical, chick, bitch, bimbo, skank, cow, sow, slut, cunt, twat. Um, cunt or bitch is still acceptable if you're applying, applying them to a man or your English, I think, in the, the latter case. Uh, there was like a weird pseudo discourse several years ago where like people made a big point about how we should call women assholes. Like asshole was is traditionally used to apply to men only and bitch, I guess was applied to women. But we, there was like a, we integrated asshole. We, we co-educated co asshole so that now it's, we, we there's like, it was really, like, it was funny to be, it was like, there was like a push to say like, no, call women assholes too. Pussy, sissy, cocksucker, those are all uh, taboo. Again, I'm not fond of being called any of these but I think that they're insults. They're supposed to be insulting. Cocksucker, of course, has like a, a homophobic connotations, I guess, because you're saying sucking. Like the thing, my objection to cocksucker is not that, I mean, it has a, an amazing like rhythm and sonic quality as an insulting word. Like what a, what a perfectly, what a perfect sounding insult word cocksucker is. It can be deployed with extraordinary eloquence uh, if you, as as you know, if you have ever, uh, if you've ever seen Deadwood, um, which is which is probably, I mean, truly the 
the highest, best, and last great use of the word cocksucker is, is like every episode of that show. But my bigger objection is that it, it suggests that that sucking cock is that there's something wrong with sucking cock. That like that like even even from like a macho homophobic perspective, there's something wrong with sucking cock. Because whereas I think like sucking cock and eating pussy are like two of the more noble human pursuits. Like it is giving oral sex is fun. It's challenging. You 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 can get you have you have to be good at it and you can get better, right? It's a skill. Uh, the person who's receiving it also has to be extremely vulnerable. Like I, I think, like overall, I'm just a little bit confused by our uh, disparagement of uh, cocksuckers and pussy eaters everywhere. So I, you know, on this on this podcast, we are pro oral sex, and and we salute all of the performers of oral sex uh, out there everywhere. Um, bizarrely. Amazingly and thankfully, I would blessedly, motherfucker is still okay. It's still totally okay to tell someone that he has sex with his mother, like as a casual insult. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Honestly, I kind of think bring all of these back. Like, like gendered insults are okay. I'm gonna just I'll go like I will go ahead and say like gendered insults are okay. Don't be, you know, like I don't know. I mean, I think like. Certainly, certainly, like what's good for the get what's sauce for the gander is sauce for the goose. But like, I also just think it's okay if we're gonna insult people, go ahead and insult them. Like, commit to insulting people. I think like part of what bothers me a little bit about some like right wingers have no problem with calling people cucks or bitches or whatever, and like a lot of that's ugly and stupid and awful. But like, part of what bothers me, I think, about like some progressive righteous insult usage is that it seems to want to have its cake and eat it. It seems to want to have the fun of insulting people while also, while retaining the moral high ground. And I think like, go ahead and just accept that you're being an asshole. Women, men, we can all be assholes together. Let's be assholes. Maybe that'll be the next Lee Ricketts t-shirt. Um, oh, big dick energy too. Uh, Alice made me promise that if I talked about this on an episode, uh, I would call that episode "Blood and Big Dicks" because she she bemoaned the fact that she should you know she was told recently that she should not use the term "big dick energy" because it was uh, cr in suggesting that people with big dicks have a special kind of uh, uh, give off a certain confident vibe that people find appealing. The suggestion, of course, is that people with small dicks or average dicks do not, and that's uh, and that's sort of sad or demeaning toward. Uh, the the small dicked among us, um, and that's true. Like that's that is what happened. Like that is what big dick energy means. Um, but like Alice said, like oh well, you know, like shouldn't she also be able to claim to have big dick big dick energy? And I think like maybe there's maybe it's easier for like a woman with no dick to to claim big dick energy in a kind of a slightly joking way than for like a man with it with a real dick that is not big like I don't know I mean I'm not, like I'm not sure it totally works but I but I, what I what I told her was that like no it's fine like no like crass insulting vulgar offensive language it's okay for it to be crass and insulting and offensive because that's what it is and you know, all of language is made of history and history is soaked in blood blood and big dicks are, are all okay and by okay I mean 
um, often horrible and offensive and uh, worthy of condemnation, but also it's fine. So um, I will, I got, I have a bunch of really good uh, listener emails to get to. I like, oh, there's like so much good stuff here. So it's this is this has gone on long enough though. So I'm gonna um, I'm gonna call it here. I will have some good secret show episodes coming up for you soon. With oh, and do get on the uh, Substack chat, which has been really fun and lively lately. Uh, Cameron and I have been arguing about the new formalists, among other things. Um, I know there are some lurkers on there. That is people who have joined but not spoken up. And welcome. That's fine. It's okay to be a lurker. Be a lurker if you want. You don't have to. You don't have to join in. You can just. You can just be a peeping tom. But do if you go to join the secret show or just sign up temporarily. You can go to the uh, um, uh, by just putting your email in, and I'll, I'll give you a free week. Um, sign up for the free subscription, and I'll give you a week's worth of the paid subscription. Is what that means. But but then then join the Substack and just like join in our our little fun phone argument thread because it's a lot of it's been juicy lately, and it's also helping me prepare for some episodes. Like it, like it's helping answer some questions about things we might be getting into. Um, Ethan asked a question about line breaks that I procrastinated answering because it because there was too much to say. And I think I'm just going to do an episode about it. So more with all of that coming soon. But do go to sleevericketts.substack.com uh, or if you have more direct complaints to make, just write me at sleevericketts at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. 